as I said, we're studying in Ezra chapter 3. We're in a series studying through the two books of Ezra and Nehemiah. It's been titled the series Church Building, God's Plan for the Future. And that reason why I said for the future will become clear as we study. But it's all about God building up his people. Uh, the story is a unique story in, in biblical history, in the history of redemption, where God's people, the Israelites, have just come towards the end of a 70-year exile in Babylon. They have so rejected the Lord. They have so turned to other gods that basically, as a kind of last resort, God says, I'm going to send you into Babylon. They're going to come take you over, plunder your city, burn and tear down your temple, and carry you away, and they had been away for over a generation. Where we're at now is God restoring them, bringing them back. And so a, a massive group of Israelites then returned from Babylon back to Jerusalem and the surrounding areas of Judah. And their main task, and surprisingly enough, their main task assigned by the king of Persia, of all people, said, I want you to go back to Jerusalem and I want you to rebuild your temple to your God. He would have been the last person that anybody would have thought was going to give that assignment. And yet, part of the story is to show us how God is over all the kings of the earth. And God ordained it and God orchestrated it. And God brought it about by putting this on Cyrus's heart as well as on the hearts of hundreds of thousands of people that made this return journey. Rebuild the temple was the assignment. What we hope to gain out of the study over the weeks is a renewed sense for you and me of being the people of God. Because not just are they rebuilding a building, a temple to worship in, what we'll see is what's happening is God is reestablishing them as the people of God. They have so lost their identity by separating themselves from God, forsaking God, so their whole identity as the people of God was gone. Wasted. They were, they were nobody. They were foreigners. They were aliens. And now God is bringing them back and restoring them as the people of God. Your identity is coming back. You are the people of God. And they're beginning to figure out what that means and beginning to live that out. So for us, this is what we want to get from the study. We want all of us in our hearts to have this renewed sense of being the people of God and learn from them. What is God teaching them about being the people of God and how does that apply to us? So you and I can live as the people of God and not just uh, an acknowledgement of being the people of God, but a, a revived devotion to building his church. They were assigned to build a building. Well, there may come a day when we end up engaging in something like that too, but the, but the lesson, what we really want to understand, what translates from then until now is that we are building up the body of Christ. We are building up one another. And we are like, as 1 Peter 2 says, stones into a spiritual house. You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. The church, the people of God, the body of Christ, is this new building made up of people like you and me. And so we want a, a revived sense of what it means to have this assignment like they did Go build the temple, go build the church, build up the people of God and give yourself to that. And so that's what we hope to 
gain here. We have a particular point in the story. Let's read together some verses. Ezra chapter 3, I'll pick up in verse 6. From the first day of the seventh month, they began to offer burnt offerings to the Lord, but the foundation of the temple of the Lord was not yet laid. So they gave money to the masons and the carpenters and food, drink, and oil to the Sidonians and the Tyrians to bring cedar trees from Lebanon to the sea to Joppa according to the grant that they had from Cyrus, king of Persia. Now in the second year after their coming to the house of God at Jerusalem in the second month, Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Jeshua, the son of Josedek, made a beginning together with the rest of their kinsmen, the priests and the Levites, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity. They appointed the Levites from 20 years old and upward to supervise the work of the house of the Lord. And Jeshua, with his sons and his brothers, and Cadmiel and his sons, the sons of Judah, together supervised the workmen in the house of God, along with the sons of Henadad and the Levites, their sons and brothers. And when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests in their vestments came forward with trumpets, and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with cymbals to praise the Lord, according to the directions of David, king of Israel. And they sang responsively, praising and giving thanks to the Lord, for he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel." And all the people shouted with a great shout when they praised the Lord because the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men who had seen the first house, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid, though many shouted aloud for joy so that the people could not distinguish the sound of the people, the sound of the joyful shout, from the sound of the people's weeping. For the people shouted with a great shout, and the sound was heard far away. What can we learn from this account of them laying the foundation of the temple? Three simple points. When God builds, when God builds, he gives us work to do, a song to sing, and a reason to rejoice. I'll just break it down simply like that. When God initiates a building project, he gives us work to do. Point number one, the work we do. As the people of God, there's, there's work to be done. This is the text that we're at. They made the journey. They returned to their homeland. They built the altar. We talked about that last week. The first thing they did was set up an altar because first and foremost, the people of God are worshipers. So before we're going to do anything, before all the practicals get taken up, before the administrating of all the details of building, we're going to stop and we're going to worship because we're worshipers. That's who we are first and foremost. After the altar was set up, They make their offerings to the Lord. They declare themselves to be his people and they worship him through sacrifice. It's time for the building 
to begin. They had been sent there on a mission to rebuild a temple. And it was time to start working. And here comes all these practical details. Okay, they collected money. They purchased supplies. They started hiring workers. They collected money, counted money, spent money, hired professionals, all to get things done. They were doing the business, and they were doing the business with the surrounding nations that were around them. They worked with them in order to get the supplies that they needed. They purchased services from them. The writer here is intentionally trying to draw some parallels to Solomon's temple. So what we have is, if you ever hear the phrase in Bible teaching, second temple, that's this one. The first temple, referring to Solomon. So if you get to Second Chronicles and start reading in Second Chronicles, you'll start hearing about Solomon building his temple and how the, the nations around provided supplies and he hired them and paid them. And so what we're reading here, the writer is really trying to draw some parallels between that first temple building and this second temple building. I know there's been a long debate that we still engage in from time to time on how the people of God are meant to live and operate in a world that rejects him. It's not easy to answer all the questions that rise up in that. There's some kind of foundation being laid here where the people of God were there notice this they're there on a government grant they got federal funds for this project they're using taxpayer dollars to build this temple they're doing business with the surrounding nations they're hiring them to build to do the construction gathering up money they're sending them food and supplies in payment for them to do the work I'm not saying it's always easy for us as Christians to figure out who to boycott and who not to and who we can do business with and how we're supposed to do this and how we're supposed to do that. But as I'm studying this text, I feel like there's a point that needs to be made before we get to those details of that discussion and think that through. There's a point that's being made in this text that God is over it all. God owns it all. He's over every ruler. That's kind of what's happening in the story. Cyrus was a major world leader, and God was directing, prompting his heart to bring about this whole project. Now, I say that not to sort of put inside of us some kind of strutting around with some kind of entitlement that, well, I belong to God, and God owns everything, so everything's mine, and we're just going to take what we want. It's not that kind of an attitude, but I believe what's coming across in the text here is that God wants to build our faith and realize that he is over the entire universe, and he's over everything, and he rules and reigns over everything. Even though we don't see everything yet currently under his rule, it truly is. And we will see it all come into fruition. So there should be a sense of faith in our hearts. The world is his. He rules the kingdoms. He rules it all. All the businesses, all the commerce, everything. It is, it is all under his heading. Could I read you a, a wonderful, maybe familiar verse from Isaiah chapter 60? Foreigners shall build up your walls. 
and their kings shall shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you, but in my favor I have had mercy on you. Your gates shall be opened continually, day and night they shall not be shut, that people may bring to you the wealth of the nations, with their kings led in procession. For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will make the place of my feet glorious. God just wants to remind us. He owns it all. He's over it all. And it should bolster our faith, increase our faith in him and who he is often wrestle how do we be in the world and not of the world how do we keep ourselves unstained from the world and yet be a witness to the world and we wrestle through these things i I believe our text is giving us a foundation to build that conversation on it's all the lord's he's over it all that's our god we're his people When God is establishing his people in his temple, both in 2 Chronicles and in Ezra 3, he brings the nations into view. Not only to show that he's over them, but also that they are the target, the ultimate target of his grace. There's a theme of the nations throughout the Bible that we cannot forget. That God wants his glory declared to the nations, and we're part of that to this day. There's a second point under this heading of the work that we're called to do, that the task of laying the foundation is attributed to the entire community. While the leaders were listed first in the text that we read, everyone had a role to play in building the temple. We read, and all who had come to Jerusalem from the captivity, every member had a part to play. This is another foundational truth about being the people of God and building the church of God. It's all right. I'd just like to read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, a wonderful passage that talks about this. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Listen to these familiar words. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, So it is is with Christ, for in one spirit we were all baptized into one body, Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not the hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body. That would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. I cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor, again, the head to the feet, I have no need of you. 
On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. Not sure how long it's been since you've read that passage. I thought it might be a good refresher and remind us every member has a place. What, what an ingenious, wise way for God to build his church. No spectators. No concert going on here. Body of Christ. Every member. Role to play. Something to do. Work to be done. The work that we do is the work we do together. And that's part of our worship. Giving, greeting, set up, children's ministry, exhorting, encouraging, praying for one another, all sorts. What a great diversity of tasks we have before us. All of us called to participate in some way. Some of you just started in our membership class just before this meeting. That will be one of the points. I don't know if it was covered in this week, but it will be covered soon. If you would like to be a member of Sovereign Grace Church, it will involve serving in some way. This is why. Because in the body of Christ, every member has a part to play. Second point, the song we sing. The work we do, secondly, the song that we sing. Once the foundation was laid, it was time to stop and sing. They got just... Phase one of the building project was done, and they called a worship service. The foundation is laid. Let's stop. Let's gather. Now, it's still a construction site. Okay, sweep the floor, put all the supplies off to the side, set up the drums, plug in the guitars. We're going to have a worship service. Stop construction. Pause. It's time to sing. I think these people were eager to sing. Some of these people had a time in their past where they struggled to sing. It was hard for them. Psalm 137 tells us about this. By the waters of Babylon. Okay, that means when they were in exile. These people now that we're reading about, this is some years prior, they're in Babylon. Okay, we're by the waters of Babylon, and there we sat down and we wept. We wept because we weren't in our home. We are in a strange place, strange language, strange customs, not our home. No cohesion of the people of God anymore. We sat down and we wept when we remembered Zion. On the willows there, we hung up our lyres. Those are guitars. For there our captors 
our captors, our oppressors, our abductors, required of us songs, and our tormentors, mirth, saying, sing us one of the songs of Zion. And their response, how shall we sing the Lord's song in a foreign land? They experienced times in their lives when none of the promises of God seemed real. They were certainly not experiencing any of them. Everything in their world seemed wrong. And they showed up at church on Sunday afternoon. Pastor Bill opened the meeting and said, please stand, we're going to sing. And you said, how am I going to sing? could I sing when everything is so backwards and upside down in my life? How can I sing when so many things are wrong and not the way they're supposed to be? How can I sing the promises of God when all the evidence in my life currently appears completely contradictory to the promises that I read in the Scripture? These people knew what it was like to have a hard time singing but now now they're standing in jerusalem their world has changed somehow miraculously they are they are there they are back home they're no longer aliens they're gathered together they're in the place where the temple was and now it's time to sing and now all of a sudden they're they're realizing oh god did come through god did act God did bring this about. His mercy is great. He actually is extremely faithful. Now that you think of it, he did precisely what he said he was going to do. Now that it's happened, I kind of remember that prophecy now. Seventy years you will return. I will bring you back and reestablish you. So they sing their song. For he is good. For his steadfast love endures forever toward Israel. In all likelihood, they sang a lot more words than that sentence. But the writer is giving us, in a sense, the epitome of praise. There you have it in one sentence. What all praise is all about, every song, all the songs, every bit of every song is all somehow under the heading and about he's good. And his steadfast love endures forever. So we sing. So last week I tried to exhort you to sing, and I'm going to do it again. I want you to sing. You do sing. I love hearing you sing. But I want to encourage you to sing and I'm going to give you some reasons why we should sing. And really in my heart, it's because I want you to experience the unique grace of God in singing. I want God to meet you in our worship time together. Something spiritual takes place when God's people gather and we sing. And it happens a little better when we sing with all our hearts. And I want us to know that and experience that. Look, we're told to sing. The Bible says to sing. 
God says, sing. Psalm 96, oh, sing to the Lord. There it is. That's what we have to do. That's why we sing every week. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Ephesians 5, 19, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. Don't forget, God told us to sing. Secondly, singing is a way that we affirm God's word together. What we sing is important. Psalm 96, the second verse says, Sing to the Lord, bless his name, tell of his salvation from day to day. We're singing about the Lord. When we sing, the songs that we sing, we're affirming together truths about God, truths about his salvation, truths about what he's done in and through Christ on our behalf. We sing. And when we sing those lyrics together, we are corporately affirming truth about God. Singing is also a way for us to worship with our whole being, our entire being. We're commanded to love the Lord our God with our entire being, our heart, soul, mind, our strength. We are called to invest every aspect, every dimension of our being into worship towards the Lord. And singing involves our minds, it involves our wills, it involves our emotions, hopefully. It involves our bodies. Singing gathers up all kinds of human dimensions and packages it into one act of worship and praise. When we sing, we're obeying the first and greatest commandment about loving God. The main point in this text is we sing because we have a song to sing. We have something to sing about. From exile under God's wrath, now gathered in Jerusalem by God's grace, they had a song. They had a song to sing. Life was happening. They were experiencing God's grace, so they had cause to gather together and sing. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21, And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. Do you understand that that's the divine, biblical perspective on humanity? You, me, us, we were once alienated from God. The spiritual reality of what we're reading about these people in the book of Ezra. They were in exile and now they're not. And you too. And me too. And us together. We used to be separated from God. And yet, through Christ, through his body, through his death, through his resurrection, we have been brought near, brought in, adopted in. This is our song. We have a song to sing. It's the best reason for us to sing and to sing loudly with our whole hearts. Third point, the reason to rejoice. The work that we do, 
the song that we sing, and the reason to rejoice. Now, when they were singing, it apparently struck an emotional chord in everybody's heart, but not in the same way. We have this strange picture. There are a section that we read ends with this somewhat strange scene that's a little bit hard to imagine. The group divides into two, and some are overcome with grief, and others seem to be overcome with joy. And they're all very emotional, and they're all very expressive, and they're all very loud. So you have weepers, and you have rejoicers. I'm trying to picture this scene. Maybe, okay, maybe a football game, 100,000 people in the stadium, and one team wins and the other team loses. And you got 50,000 people cheering and shouting and rejoicing, and you got 50,000 people crying and weeping and grumbling and complaining. Maybe something like that. Somehow this was happening. Somehow this was going on, and this group divided because there was the older generation, the older ones who had seen Solomon's temple in all of its glory. And now they're looking at this foundation, just a foundation. Can you picture this in your mind, okay? Folks, time to gather, let's have a worship service, and all we have is a foundation, like footers, concrete footers uh, around the perimeter. There's no building, there's no roof, there's no nothing, just, just stone foundation laid, getting ready to build. And we say, it's, we've got to sing. It's time to gather. Let's worship. But this older generation, they looked at what was there, this foundation, and they had in their memory this glorious temple of Solomon. Massive, beautiful, ornate, Inner rooms completely covered in gold, furnished, spectacular. And they're looking at this foundation, and it makes them cry. It's a little bit of a challenge to really piece together what was going on in their minds. I mean, down to the detail. We know in general. Sometimes I read, I used to read that and think, um, did Solomon's temple, was it, was it huge? And now they got like a, like a miniature temple that they're building and it's like it's really small and they're looking at it like they're really disappointed. Wow, Solomon's temple was... Probably not. The, the edict from Cyrus was to rebuild it according to plan. So the indication is they were, they were rebuilding like the same footprint of before. So it's not likely that that's... Our text says, let its foundations be retained. Now, there's some discrepancy in the dimensions listed. We have dimensions of Solomon's, and we have dimensions of the second temple. Solomon's temple was listed as 60 by 20 by 30 cubits, cubit about 18 inches. Ezra's just listed and says 60 by 60, like 60 wide and 60 high. We can't quite figure out What's the problem here? And why just two numbers instead of three? It, it's hard to not just say probably some scribal error here. Something got lost in translation. But what it does tell us is we're not looking at Solomon had a huge temple and now we're talking about a teeny weeny little temple. But the prophets help us. Haggai chapter 2 speaks about this. And in the prophecy... Uh, in that second chapter of Haggai, 
He makes this comment about these people looking at these temple that are disappointed at it. And he says, is it as nothing in your eyes? And the, the context is about glory. And so it's, it's very possible that these old timers are looking at this new foundation. It's unfinished. It's not glorious. It's a construction site. It could have something to do with the Ark of the Covenant was lost, and so now this new temple is going to be formed, and there's not going to be this main piece of furniture in the center where God's presence comes down. But something about what they saw lacked glory. Well, that's not hard to comprehend. There was no building there to display any glory. And it caused them to cry, to weep, Sometimes, when we see just how incomplete the work is, it makes us grieve. Sometimes it's difficult. Sometimes we get confronted with the reality that things are just in process. That God's not finished with us yet. That we're somewhere in the process of it, but it's sometimes terribly incomplete. And we look at it and we say, oh, it's supposed to be glorious. And we look at the reality and we see just a stone footer, just a foundation. These folks had a little bit of trouble with these nostalgic memories about the good old days. And some of us that have been around a while can struggle with the same thing. Some of us that have been walking with the Lord for a long time have some wonderful memories of days long ago where the Lord moved and the Lord met us and the Lord spoke to us. If Tammy and I are sitting in a small group and we start talking about the good old days when we first came to this church, we really have wonderful, glorious memories of getting brought into this church, welcoming into this church, getting involved and serving and making new friends and worshiping. Oh, oh, we had some services. Oh, God's Spirit just really came down and we were so blessed god was speaking to us regularly and we experienced personal growth and personal encouragement they were there were wonderful times for us i remember how we felt we felt very blessed because god was speaking and god was moving now if i were to stop and pause for a minute and think uh you know what now that i think about it there were a lot of people that had lots of problems. There was still trouble in the church. There, was all, there, there were things that were like not quite right. But I remember God meeting us. The danger that these people are having is a danger that, that can tempt you and I as we get caught up in the nostalgia of the good old days and lose sight of what God is doing in the here and now. It's not like it used to be. I remember how I felt then. I'm not feeling it now. What is God doing today? It used to be fun. It used to be great. It used to be glorious. They're all standing around with their work gloves on in the middle of a building project. It's messy. It's dirty. Oh, now we have to sing. And they're looking at it and thinking, I have memories of Solomon's temple glorious 
skilled musicians, massive choirs, glorious sound. Haggai chapter 2. In the, seventh, in the seventh month, on the 21st day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai the prophet. Speak now to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and to all the remnant of the people, and say, Who's left among you who saw this house in its former glory? How do you see it now? Is it not as nothing in your eyes? Yet now be strong, O Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, O Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people of the land, declares the Lord. Work, for I am with you, declares the Lord of hosts. According to the covenant that I made with you when you came out of Egypt, my spirit remains in your midst. Fear not. For thus says the Lord of hosts, yet once more, in a little while, I will shake the heavens and the earth and the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations so that the treasures of all nations shall come in, and I will fill this house with glory, says the Lord of hosts. Silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord of hosts. The latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts. And in this place, I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. God speaks. When we get stuck in the past, when we get stuck looking back, God comes and he speaks. Look up, look ahead. In a sense, God is saying, you think Solomon's temple was glorious? Oh no. That was just a shadow. I'm going to do something in the latter that's going to far exceed Oh, don't get yourself caught looking back at past glories. God is calling us to look forward to future glories. And there were those people that were rejoicing. They could see plainly that God's work was incomplete, but what did they see? What was so different for them? God was at work. He was doing it. He has brought this about. So the people of God can sing even when the work is incomplete. The people of God can sing and worship even when we're not yet there entirely. The work is incomplete. We're in process. Maybe not even impressively in progress. And yet, the people of God have reason to rejoice, and they can sing. God's building project is still in process. They could rejoice on that day with just a foundation, not a building, because they were seeing God's faithfulness, because they realized they are now a part of what God is doing, and because now they know in seeing God's faithfulness, that they can have assurance that God, in fact, will complete. He will fulfill what he said he will do. 
Do you know this? Have you, have you experienced, seen, and known God answer and come through for you? It bursts your faith open to realize something about who God is. When he says it, when he makes the promise, he will do it. Oh, just last year I was so discouraged because it looked like it wasn't happening. It wasn't making sense. The promise was here. Real life was here. And now they're in a situation. It came true. It came true. God did it. We're experiencing it. We're in the middle of it. It's not done yet, but we're in it. We've seen enough to know that when God speaks, he does what he says. I am with you according to the covenant. Fear not. Fear not. Work. Keep going. Don't don't give up. Because the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former. We are going to look so good. It is going to be so glorious when God is finished with us, with what he's doing. Let's have the worship team come on up. Friends, are you, are you struggling with a glorious past? And a not so glorious present. The word of the Lord is clear. It's really not back there. It's out front. But here's what happened with these people. It's out front. But they sang today. Because of what God did. They could trust the Lord, and they had a song to sing. And they had reason to rejoice. And their reason for rejoicing was only going to increase. So don't get caught in past nostalgic experiences with God's Spirit, wonderful as they were. Praise God for every one of them. There's more to come. There's greater to come. And so we stand and we sing today and we look forward. Yeah, stand. Thank you. Thank you, Holly. She got it. None of you else got it. She got it. Let's stand and sing and let's praise this wonderful God.